0: Welcome to Wealthy, and I'm your host, Eric Chemi. Today, we are joined by Robert Bruska. He is the chief economist of fact and opinion economics based out of New York City. He's a longtime commentator on the markets, on macroeconomics, you know, central bank policy. What are we seeing right now with interest rates, the Fed's path, and all of that? Robert, on your bio, it says, You were the very first guest on the very first day of CNBC going back like 30 years. Is that true? How is that possible?
1: Well, it's true. It's, It's true because I'm old. I'm an old guy. I've been around for a long time. My first job was in New York at the Fed. I worked for Paul Volker in 1977 at the New York Fed. So I've been doing this for a while. But yeah, I was interviewed in CNBC studios when they were in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and the studio wasn't built. I was interviewed by uh, then Neil Cavuto, who couldn't come over from NPR with Sue Herrera sitting at the anchor desk. We were interviewed on on folding chairs because the studio wasn't ready. And Bob Wright, the, the, the president of NBC, was in some side sensory deprivation you know booth, soundproof booth, where he was talking about what it was. And then I did my interview. I was the first guest on the first day on CNBC holding
0: chairs and and going back to your work with Paul Volcker. I didn't realize that so tell me about what was that like, right? Because Paul Volcker got such a it feels like a bad rap at the time for jacking up rates, doing what he needed to do to to really kill inflation. I think history has proven him right, but I think at the time it was, you know, a little bit hard to manage the manage the the messaging, the PR spin of all of that what do you think his legacy is now, having been on the inside and maybe seeing that that disconnect from what the what public or you know politicians would have wanted to what he was actually trying to accomplish?
1: Well, I, I kind of disagree with your take on this. I, I mean, I realize there were people who were upset by what he did, but I think it was recognized that he was doing something that needed to be done. I don't think that uh, his legacy is one of somebody who ran roughshod over the economy. There was a tremendous price that we paid for getting inflation under control, but um, I think it's well-recognized that inflation had been out of control for over a decade. And what happened was Jimmy Carter came in as president, and he made G. William Miller, the chairman of the Fed, former uh, CEO of Textron. And I've been in an elevator uh, at the board with, uh, with Miller, who was reading in this crowded elevator. And he was a really short guy. You know, you could just look over his shoulder. And he's reading this eyes only document in a very crowded elevator, which I found to be very strange. So Miller did not exactly have a lot of respect for Fed culture. And he wasn't a real popular guy. And inflation was still under out of control. And at some point, Carter realized that, well, maybe he liked this guy for Fed chair, but this was the wrong pick. But of course, Fed chairman can't be easily removed. And so Carter came up with this idea of moving him over to Treasury to make him Treasury Secretary where he could fiddle with the tax code, which is something he wanted to reform. And so he offered him that and Miller bit and went to Treasury. And so then the question is, who becomes the Fed chair? And um, Paul Volcker was the obvious uh, person to come in and be a tight money guy. But Carter was warned by his people that if you put Paul Volcker in that slot, that he would likely not be reelected as president, that he would be a one-term president, and said, so th- this is why I have great respect for Jimmy Carter. You know, Jimmy Carter is not recognized as one of our great presidents. But to me, Jimmy Carter was a great man. And this was a very important thing that he did. He put the needs of the country ahead of himself. He realized that this would probably going to be a decision that would cause him to be not reelected, and that was true. And he put Paul Volcker in that position. And frankly, I can't think of any politician today who I would trust to make that same sort of decision?
0: Well, that's what gets me to. What do you see today? Right, we've been having these issues whether inflation is transitory or not. Right, what what are we doing about it? Are we going to keep these five percent rates? We're going to start bringing them down. If we won that war on inflation, it feels much more political now. It feels much more about people's reputation, their optics, getting reelected. You know, across the across the aisle, across whatever type of job that you may have, whether it's appointed or elected, everyone wants to keep that job. Do you feel that this modern version of the Fed is not as good as the version that you would have worked for?
1: Well, I think it is different, different, and I think it's hard to make the comparison. Um, As I just spoke about, Paul Volcker, right, he came in office after a decade of inflation getting out of control, right? It started with the 1969 recession, then the 73, 75 recession. And in those recessions, inflation went up. And at the end of the recession, it was higher than when it started. So they really had a hard time getting control. And so when Volcker came in, he had a mandate to stop inflation. Okay. Now, Powell took office in a very different environment with price stability. Prices have been stable. We've had a low inflation environment, again, for a decade or longer. And so inflation has been stable and all of a sudden it it picks up and he doesn't have the same mandate to go after inflation and to kill it. In fact, most people think, oh, well, this is inflation. You know, it's going to go away. It's going to be transitory. Why? Because you have professionals, you know, people probably watching this podcast who have been in the business for 10 and 15 years and have never seen inflation before. You know, it's like going to the zoo. Hey, Martha, there's some inflation. It's over there in the cage, you know. (laughs) Is that what it looks like? Yeah. And so they think that this is going to pass. And when it's done, inflation will go back down to 2% and everything will be fine. Now, I come from a different generation, right? I got my PhD in 1977, went to work for the Fed in the middle of a period when inflation was still roaring away. Like
0: That's what you grew up with in a way. You grew up with the opposite environment that, that people get. If you get a PhD today, you've never seen inflation in your life, basically. Uh, but yeah, very, very possibly,
1: very possibly. And I grew up in Detroit, so I knew about business cycles, right? I, I worked on, actually worked on the assembly line. I dropped her axles on trucks uh, for Dodge Truck in order to make money to go to graduate school and my undergraduate degree. Um, and so I saw business cycles. I saw the auto companies have to shut down plants. Uh, there was one summer where I couldn't get my summer job at the plant because, you know, that was 1969 when we were in recession and they weren't really hiring people in the summer. So, you know, I had experienced that firsthand, but now we've got people who think that inflation is just low and it's always gonna be low. And um, I don't think it's true. And in fact, when you take a look at what's happened, it's a it's a strange set of circumstances because uh, inflation came about because of COVID, right? We didn't have inflation getting wild beforehand. Well, because of the stimulus,
0: right? It didn't come because of COVID, it came because we put trillions of dollars into the economy, right?
1: No, right. No, true, true. I mean, COVID was not a disease that caused inflation. So you correct me. That's that's true. And it was the policies pursued uh, too much fiscal policy, too much monetary policy, too much of it at one time. And uh, and then the Federal Reserve waiting a year after inflation accelerated above their target. They waited a year before they began raising rates. Now, that's that's the thing that has to stick in your craw, because why did they wait so long? No, again, the, the Volcker Fed never would have waited that long. In fact, most feds prior to that never would have waited that long. So, so but- why?
0: That's what I'm curious about. What was the difference from the Volcker Fed that you were with to this current Fed? Why do they wait so long if we've got all these bright people? It's really hard to get one of these jobs They're They're at the top of their game. You know, they, most of them have PhDs. Or these are economics experts. How can, as a group, all of them make that mistake?
1: Well, there are a lot of reasons, and there are things we can speculate about. Um, One thing we can recognize is that policy had come to be made by looking at models. And in the wake of COVID, you couldn't really trust models to uh, give you the right answer, because so much in the economy had changed. So they lost one of the main tools that they leaned on. Um, Also, there was politics, right? We'd had this tremendous schism between Democrats and Republicans. And during this period, Donald Trump was vying for... You know, re-election. The economy was being killed by COVID and the reactions to COVID, and uh, and Chair Powell was up for renomination, and he was being pressured, particularly by Elizabeth Warren, who at one point told the president not to reappoint him because uh, under any circumstances, because she just opposed what he did and thought he was a a tool of Wall Street. Well, in the event, of course, Powell did get reappointed by President Biden. And he, he did what Elizabeth Warren wanted him to do, which was to not be preemptive with interest rates. They waited for inflation to come up before they raised interest rates. And they waited for inflation for far, far too long. Inflation got far too high. And you know, it's hard to argue that Powell didn't do this because he wanted to get renominated. And um, no one will ever prove that. Powell has been asked that question. He said it wasn't politics. And the Fed has a number of very, as far as I'm concerned, very strange, strained technical arguments. Uh, Chris Waller, for example, tells this story about how uh, there were these revisions to the job numbers that the economy was looking weaker and then they revised. So you look at the data now and they're stronger. Well, that's true. But I mean, (laughs) inflation was headed up this, you know, seven, eight percent and more on the CPI and the Fed was sitting on its hands. the problem was that the Fed had been in this long period of price stability with interest rates below the inflation rate for a long time, which is something they never would have done. And yet inflation wasn't picking up. So once inflation picked up, the Fed was already behind the eight ball. You know, The, the real interest rate was negative and it became more negative. And the Fed still waited and waited. We had, if I recall this calculation correctly, we had 14 of the 20 most deeply negative real Fed funds rates that we had since the 1960s in this last business cycle, 14 of the 20 lowest real Fed funds rates by month in one economic period. This is stunning. So the Fed policy was very late in moving, but they eventually got it moving and they eventually got rates up and they did it very quickly. And we had these tremendous 75 basis point rate hikes lumped on top of one another. We'd never seen that before and so the fed finally got its religion after mr Powell was reappointed and um but then when they got the the real interest rate near zero right they got the federal funds rate basically up to the level of the inflation rate instead of pushing it up to make it more restrictive they they stopped they waited and um subsequent to that what happened was inflation in the good sector began to come down good sector inflation had soared It was, in fact, transitory. It was related to a lot of these supply problems. And as the supply chain began to be repaired, goods inflation went from being extremely high down to where it is today, which is zero. And the CPI core goods inflation is 0.1% over the last 12 months. So core goods inflation is gone. It was transitory. However, the bigger weight in the CPI is from services. And the core service sector inflation rate is still running in the neighborhood of Five percent or so. And so the Fed has to decide what to do about this. People who look at the overall inflation rate and think that inflation is going to fall in the next 12 months, the way it did in in the previous 12 months, they're wrong because the goods inflation rate spiked very quickly, came down very quickly, and that's done now. So now you're stuck with the service sector where prices move much more slowly, where the inflation rate is much higher and where it's much more stubborn. And so I'm very concerned about this view that the Fed's going to be cutting rates a lot this year because service sector inflation is still high. And although it's been coming down, it's not going to come down very fast. And so I think if you're looking at the overall core inflation rate, you're going to be looking at something that looks a little bit more tame. But in the services sector, it's still too high and it has to come down a great deal in order to uh, get us to the Fed's 2 percent target. And so all this talk about soft landing is really what bothers me because I think it's the wrong place for Fed policy to be right now.
0: You, know, you said so much on You give me so many questions and when, when you talk about people's experience, maybe what their motivations are for certain policy decisions. And I think about I think about what you said about your own experience, a couple of things. I was having a conversation with someone else who's, you know, been in the business for a long time, and he said, in a lot of jobs there's age discrimination but in certain jobs you want the oldest people possible because they've seen all the cycles they've been through it they've actually experienced all these things and you mentioned being in Detroit seeing business cycles having a real job right not just let's say a phd kind of job do you think that this current version of the fed lacks that type of let's call it cognitive diversity that that they've never been through you know, real blue-collar jobs, working in a factory, like go go be that person for real. Don't just talk to them. Don't just read about them, but have been that person. Like you've been that person. So you understand beyond what the models say, you're know, this is how it actually works in real life.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I don't know what people's uh, you know experiences. Somebody gets a PhD in economics, you know, maybe they always had privileged education, maybe not, maybe they had a hard scrabble background. You know, I am concerned. I'm concerned more about our politicians. Uh, I, I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan where I had this professor who ran campaigns, right? He ran Romney's campaign for governor. And then he was also giving advice to Romney when he ran for the for the president. This is, this is uh, not myth, this is George Romney when he was governor of Michigan. So this goes back quite a long time. And uh, my professor was telling us in those days, he said, you know, we're coming to a time where you are going to have professional politicians you are going to have people who have done nothing but been politicians. Now, when I was, uh, you know, at at Michigan, I had this 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 assistantship where I wrote a paper where I looked at legislative compensation in Michigan. So I found all of the bills that raised compensation for legislators. Every single one of them was hidden and attached to another bill. No politician in Michigan ever voted to raise his own pay without saying, well, I voted for that because it was attached to this other bill. Right.
0: I had no choice. I had to vote for it because we were trying to help you guys out. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 So that's how it works. So anyhow, over time, um, you know, the legislature legislature used to meet in the summer. They used to meet for a couple of weeks or maybe a, a month or something like that. And eventually it became a full time job and it got paid like a full time job. And that's what we are now. We have people who have never had a real job. Barack Obama, you know, his real job was what he worked for the Law Review at Harvard, and he worked as an organizer for the Democratic Party. Now, this isn't really a real job to me. Um, There are a lot of people who haven't had jobs in, in real businesses. And so I'm concerned that they don't really understand what the real world is like. Now, people at the Fed have all worked they, in, you they've know,
0: all worked for the one company that can't go bankrupt they've all worked for the government. No other company can just tax people and and get your salaries paid right there's a there's a real big difference between oh, I had a job where we could actually get laid off and the company could actually go bankrupt If you work for the government at any level, that thing has taxing authority and you're going to stay in business
1: right but there are a lot of fed people who have had other jobs um right. I think about uh,
0: the politicians, like you said, the, the full-time oh, politicians. The oh, yeah, the, politicians. This,
1: yeah. This is a very worrisome thing because you know they, they, think, they think that money comes from raising taxes, and it does. But they don't realize where that money comes from. It comes right. from people's pockets. It comes from people having jobs. It comes from people working and making sacrifices. And so it's really uh, difficult when you have people who just think, well, this is free money. If we want money. We just raise taxes and we have more money. And they don't realize how it interacts with the economy and how the economy performs, and uh, you know, the role of, of the proper tax rate. They just don't even conceive of it. And so this is a real problem, and we're seeing this now with, with rampant attempts to have redistribution. This open border policy is a huge economic drain. You know, I'm, I'm in New York City, and there is a $53 million pilot program. God only knows what happens if it flies. This is a pilot program to give uh, money to people who are homeless in New York who've come across the border. and um, this is a big problem. I mean, people didn't want to spend money on Trump's wall, but the money that we're spending on these people now was just amazing. There's a story yesterday. you can go to Zero Hedge and you can find this story about how San Francisco has put their first non-citizens on their election committee. They have non-citizens on their election committee out in San Francisco. You know um, what is going on here? Uh, I. What, what, am... what would
0: Paul Volcker have thought? <laughs> like if this was happening back then, what would we have, you know, How can I manage an economy where I don't even know where the where where, where the limit is? I don't know where it ends.
1: Well, uh, you know, Volcker was a monetary guy. Although there, there there, there was a time where uh, he. In some sense, threatened Congress that if they didn't pass a more restrictive budget bill, he wasn't going to be able to cut interest rates. Right? He was formally linking monetary policy to what they did on the fiscal side, which we and, saw see with
0: the COVID stuff. Right? If you just put trillions of dollars out there, then like, how is someone supposed to offset that?
1: Well, that that was one up. You know, I mean, there was this big fiscal stimulus, and so the Fed had big monetary stimulus. Right. And you know, the thing about the monetary stimulus that that bothers me the most is that. Um, Even when this is going on, I got to ask a question about Fed official about why they cut interest rates. I mean, we were being trapped in our houses. We were told to stay at home. We couldn't go out. So why cut interest rates? What was cutting the interest rate going to do? Well, according to their models, it had this and that effect. But of course, the models don't really work. And uh, one of the answers that I got, well, they thought that with slightly lower interest rates, it might encourage some investment to occur somewhere. Well, maybe. But that very low interest rate policy turned out to be terrible because let me explain what happened. The fed pumped up money supply. We had record growth in money supply and that's given way now to the first contraction of money supply that we've seen since at least the 1950s. I don't know how far my data don't go back any farther. So I don't know how long since the money supply contracted, but now we're seeing money supply contract. But previously we saw it boom and we saw it boom to such a tremendous extent. It was the strongest money supply growth we have seen in over 60 years. And what does that mean? Money supply. What is money? Money supply contains mostly bank liabilities. What does that mean? Well, it means that deposits in banks are growing like gangbusters. So what does that mean? Well, that means that banks are flush with money, but we have people locked in their houses. So people don't want to borrow. A lot of people aren't working. So banks really don't want to lend to them. So what did the banks do? The banks bought the only asset that they could buy in bulk. And those were government securities. So around the time the money supply was booming at these tremendous growth rates, the yield on the two-year note, you remember where it was 25 basis points. So banks were were buying these securities with yields of 25 basis points. Now, if they bought anything, they wanted a higher yield, they had to commit themselves to a longer tenor, not just two years, five years or 10 years. And so and but the Fed was saying, don't worry, the inflation is transitory. It's transitory. We're not going to raise rates. We're going to keep rates low for a long period of time. And then, oops, oops, the inflation rate went up and it went up more and it went up even more. And it went up so much that maybe it is a transitory, you know, maybe we have to raise rates. But the banks couldn't go back and unbuy a 25 basis point two year. And so this is why when a bank like Silicon Valley Bank fails. You know, my expression for it is, you know, and I'm going to apologize to them. I'm, I'm a Catholic guy. It's a very Catholic phrase, but that Silicon Valley Bank died for the Fed's sins. <laughs> I, I like that. So, so the Fed didn't realize that banks had these deep losses on treasury securities. One of the reasons the bank examiners are always told, oh, Federal Reserve, Fed, I'm sorry, government securities are golden. You know, you don't ever have to worry about them because when we have a financial crisis, Interest rates go down and the price on those things goes up and there's no credit. risk, So you never have to worry about them. So the bank examiners never really looked very closely at the Treasury securities. And so when when Silicon Valley Bank got into trouble and they had losses on these securities, well, they'd set them aside in this special um, uh, hold to maturity basis, which meant they did not have to mark them to market, but they still had to report it. So there was a footnote item that got reported. And one of their investors noticed that there was this big loss that would wipe out most of their capital if they had to sell the securities. But they didn't have to sell the securities. But this created pressure and a runoff on the bank. And then the bank had some uh, investments that were illiquid and they couldn't get back having to do with some technical things with the federal home loan banking system. The Fed found that it really couldn't get money to them. And this is why after Silicon Valley Bank failed that the Federal Reserve began loaning against all collateral without it being marked to market. The Fed took everything at face value. And we're still in that world today. And there's a question about where we go next with this and whether the Fed will be renewing that. So Fed policy, actually, with all this stimulus, put the banking sector behind the eight ball. Because Silicon Valley Bank isn't the only bank that had problems with that. You know, we had a Swiss bank that failed after these interest rates went up. We had another bank failure in New York, and we had a securities firm that I don't want to mention because they, they they're kind of they, they were in the muck and they're out of it, but who had the same problem with investors and their stock price fell very sharply, because they also had a lot of hold to maturities that people saw had big losses on them, and it caused their stock to be marked down. So, Fed policy, you know, my mother was used to say that you know the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The Fed has good intentions. But the problem is uh, that good intentions can go bad. And uh, this help during the COVID period was too much of the wrong kind of help. We got an overdose and the banking system is still grappling with that. And it's one of the reasons, I think, why the Fed wants to cut rates on the early side, because they want to give banks some relief.
0: I think about that COVID period. And like you said, everyone was stuck in their homes. I didn't connect all these dots until now, but everyone was stuck in their homes while Feds cutting rates. And I remember, at least let's say my demographic, what was everyone doing? They were on their phone. They were gambling on sports. They were buying options. Well, then sports was close. And so then they moved into options gambling, you know, options trading or gambling, mean stocks. And right? it was all the crazy stuff people did with, I've got a bunch of money and I'm stuck at home. So I'm going to get on my phone and I'm just going to gamble whatever I can gamble. You call it trading, you call it investing, but it was a lot of short-term, you know, you know, it's going to the moon kind of stuff on the meme stocks, right? And then and I think about the liquidity, like the 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 bank dying for the Fed sins. I remember we had John Maxfield on, he's a bank historian. And he said, if you look at the history of bank failures over the time, you know, the course of the United States, anytime there's been a rush of too much liquidity into banks, then the unwind results in banks blowing up. And 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 what you're saying exactly is that, oh, we have all this money, we got to put it in something. Now we've got two years at 25 bips, boom, that doesn't work. So we're out. So I think it, it does connect a lot of dots on what you're saying. So, you know, now having all that backstory, and I, I want to get into what we're, we're looking at going forward, but I think about are these the kinds of mistakes that over time go back to the 70s, go back to Volcker's period where they were having problems for 10 years, right? He took that office with we've had inflation for 10 years and now I need to do something about it. Are we setting ourselves up for that same thing? Is it gonna be, hey, it's the year 2030 and we've had an entire decade of the 2020s where they couldn't figure
1: out how to get this right? Yeah, well, we've come through that. Remember uh, when Volcker was there, they had the SNL crisis because there had been, there had been interest rate ceilings before the Fed engaged in these new operating procedures. And, uh, and so banks had, uh, uh a ceiling on what they could pay for money. So the way monetary policy used to work, it's a process called disintermediation. Market interest rates would go up above the interest rate ceiling and banks wouldn't be able to attract money anymore because securities are going to pay a higher interest rate, but banks couldn't pay that much and so money would go elsewhere. So if you wanted to buy a house, you'd go to your bank and your bank would say, well, we don't have money to lend you. You It's a bank, they didn't have money to lend you. They couldn't get money, so it was disintermediation. So it worked in a different way. So eventually when they when they raise those interest rate ceilings, then I mean, one one of the consequences of that is well, you have banks who have they have assets and liabilities, right? They already have a lot of mortgages on their books and they were made under the old rules. And so the interest rates are all low. And now you're gonna raise market rates tremendously. What's gonna happen to all the assets they have on their books? Well, they're gonna show losses. Guess what? You know, there, there's nothing they can do. I mean, you can argue, well, if they knew that you were gonna do this, they could have gone out and sold futures contracts to beat the band, but every SNL in the United States couldn't do that. And in fact, they may not even have been uh, approved to to, to dabble in futures contracts in those days. So uh, the Fed engaged in a policy that put the banking part of the banking system uh, really up against the wall. And similarly, what the Fed did this time, although not because of banking regulations, but just because of the quickness and the way that rates moved, put banks once again up against the wall. So uh, it looks like we've been through the worst of that. There may be some lingering problems. But um, what we're facing now is just an unknown future where we have a lot of inflation optimists. On the other hand, we still have a lot of lingering inflation. Lingering inflation is very high in the services sector. It's low in the goods sector. And so people can kind of cherry pick what they think is going to happen in the future. And this is, uh, I think, potentially a dangerous situation.
0: So where do you see the next, let's say, 12 months? Like, what should investors be worried about? What what data should they be looking at? Because I think it's tricky for a lot of people who point out, let's say rightfully everything you're looking at. Right? Hey, I see tax policy that's kind of a mess. I see open borders that's clearly not working and the money that's coming out of my pocket to spend on that. But I see markets at all-time highs. And yet the richest companies in the world, you look even even the rich tech companies are doing layoffs. So there's layoffs all over the place, but we're at all-time highs. I don't trust the Fed. If they start to cut, what does that mean? Maybe we're not ready for that with services inflation. A lot of people are really confused right now as to what they should do. and and a lot of them have that viewpoint that you have, which is I don't really trust I don't trust what they're doing. And I look at one of the articles you wrote on Seeking Alpha, does the Fed have a clue what makes inflation or what or what removes it? Or another article has the Fed just declared victory or accepted defeat? And then why do people feel so bad with the economy doing so well? So that that's I think what you're getting at is this this conflict, this moral dilemma of, of where are we and how should I think about the country right now?
1: Yes. Um, for example, I was just looking at the paper recently. My wife and I were looking at some securities firms that were making new stock market predictions. And just a few, uh, just a month or so ago, one of them was, was forecasting a much lower stock market by the end of the year than what we have now, but now the market has jumped. And so they're forecasting an even higher level. And uh, she's pointing out to me that, yeah, they're saying that it's going to be higher earnings. And I said to her, well, what else are they going to say? I mean, <laughs> you missed the stock price. It went up more than you thought. You're a securities firm, you don't want to tell people that prices are going to go down because then they won't be buying stocks from you. So you have to forecast that rates are going to be going up, stock prices are going to go up. And if you forecast that stock prices are going to go up, well, there has to be a reason for it. So what can you say? Well, you can you can pick the one variable that nobody has a clue it's going to happen. You can talk about earnings and say earnings are going to be much better. Growth is going to be much better. Well, is it? You know, it's very interesting because over the last year or so, economists were talking about recession. And now we're talking about another super bulge in growth and, and continued progressively new highs in the stock market. Now, how can people get the economy so wrong? What's really going to happen? I think the bottom line on this is quite clear. Nobody really knows. Nobody has a clue. You can have securities econ- securities companies economists giving you forecasts, but nobody has much confidence in what's going on. You know, just a year ago, a lot of economists were forecasting recession, and now they've taken it off the table. But should they? aren't we still really at risk? I mean, the job market is really tight. So I've mentioned this before, but the Fed is is looking for a soft landing. Why, in a situation where you've got the unemployment rate, basically, as, almost as low as it's been in the last 70 years, right? 3.4%, we're 3.8% now. Um, why would you be giving a priority to preserving this very low unemployment rate that history shows we've not been able to keep below 4% for an extended period of time. That's just history. Run a chart on the unemployment rate. Look at it yourself. The unemployment rate doesn't stay below 4% for very long. And we've got inflation that's really overshooting a target, and yet the Fed does not want to be really aggressive. The Fed wants to be kind of passive. Well, we kind of have the Fed funds rate at a place that's a little bit restrictive. And if the inflation rate comes down, that's gonna make it more restrictive. So then we don't wanna say, oh, that's good. Now we're gonna be more restrictive. We wanna say, oh no. So then we have to cut rates so we don't get too restrictive because we don't want the unemployment rate to go up. Well, you know the Fed has a dual objective for policy and it's a dual mandate. So the Fed needs to get inflation down to its two percent target, not a five percent target, not a four percent target, not a three percent target. It has a two percent target, and meanwhile its other goal is to have maximum sustainable employment. Well, it's got the unemployment rate down to I don't know a 69-year low. Uh, and it's only moved up slightly from that. So why is the Fed still emphasizing the rate of unemployment and you know, making the the inflation rate uh, the stepchild of policy? I don't understand that.
0: Why is it? I'm supposed to ask you the questions. You're supposed to well, have me. I, I,
1: I think the reason is that there's a lot of political pressure on the Fed. It's, did you know that this was an election year?
0: Uh, you know, now that you mention it, and now that you mentioned, it, I guess that's true.
1: yeah, how about that? And so we've got we've got all these well, who do they want
0: uh, to win who's the who's the side of the Fed who are they who are they trying to help? are they are they generally Democrats generally Republicans? do they just do they just want to stay out of it and be like we're not going to do anything in an election what what is their goal knowing that it's political? but I don't know what side they're on
1: Well, the pressure on the Fed always comes from Congress, right? when Volcker was chairman, Henry Gonzalez, was in the, the Banking Committee, and he was giving Volcker problems. And uh, Volcker had to deal with that. And Henry Gonzalez turned out not to be a problem because he didn't get reelected. So he was no longer the, the chairman of the, of the Banking Committee. Uh, but uh, we're dealing now with uh, the very aggressive Elizabeth Warrens of the world and uh, other people. Remember, the Fed was created by an act of Congress. People go back to Trump when he was president and say, oh, Trump was leaning on the Fed. You know, Well, he was, but so what? The president has very limited power over the Fed. He can appoint the chair. He can nominate the chairman. He can nominate members. But those numbers have to be vetted and approved in the Senate. And after people are nominated to the Fed, he has no he has no influence over the Fed anymore. It's Congress that can change everything about the Fed at a blink. So it's Congress that the Fed has to worry about. And of course, when when Trump was putting pressure on the Fed, it was Congress. It was a Democrat Congress to put their arms around Powell and said, "Oh, we're going to protect you." And believe me, this—they were putting their arms around him, but putting their hands in his pockets at the same time. <laughs> and uh, and I believe that this is where some of the pressure came from. But Powell is also—he's an investment banking guy, and he's—you know—he's not uh, an economist, and he's not wedded to any economic model. And he's used to making deals. So he probably just looks at this as kind of he's making the deal that he has to make so the Fed can make its best policy. And uh, nobody really knows where the interest rate has to be. So maybe he doesn't mind uh, bargaining a little bit more than another Fed chairman would. And um, and I- I'm concerned about this. You know, I'm concerned about the fact that the Fed has uh, caused all the bank examiners to report to to the board rather than to the local district banks. This is a centralization of power and control at the Fed. I don't think this is a good development. Um, I'm I I don't like the fact that uh, when you had challenges against Rob Kaplan and against uh, uh, Rosengren and the Boston Fed, Eric Rosengren, that the Fed did not step up and, and defend them because there was a group at the board as well as at their local district banks that we're looking at and vetting these investments. And they were told that they could make the investments that they made, and so they made them. And then later that was criticized, and so then they were blamed for it. But hey, if you work for an organization, and if you're told you, to make this investment, you have to get permission from that guy, okay? And you get permission. Well, then you've got permission. Then it doesn't matter if your trade is scummy or not. You've gotten permission, so you can make that trade. And so as far as I'm concerned, if there was a problem with the trades, you know, that albatross hangs around the neck of the people at the board who were vetting it or at the district banks who said it was okay, not around the guys who made the trades, because they did what they were supposed to do. They got cleared, they made the trades. They said, Can I do it? They said, Mother, may I? And the Fed said, Yes, you may. So it's the person who said yes, you may that I think is responsible. But Powell, who also had Leo Brainerd at the Fed, and they were both jockeying for that empty, you know, Fed chair position that was going to be up for grabs, neither one of them wanted additional scrutiny. On the board of governors, and so they threw that out to the district banks. So I think we have a lot of examples of the Fed lacking the kind of leadership it needs to have, and that does bother me. I think the Fed needs to have leadership. I don't think the Fed needs to be cutting deals. I
0: hear all this, and and I agree with you on so many on so many levels about generally your your comments, your point of view, and a lot of these things were true three months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, twelve months ago. Right? This is these are not things that just happened here in, in february but if somebody were to take it you know too far let's say they hear all this and they think you know i don't trust any of this i don't believe in this Da da i'm selling all my stocks all of a sudden like that securities from you missed a 20 percent move in in a few months you you're you're behind the eight ball on that you're you're very behind so how should someone think about their investments when we have this litany of problems and we don't trust the leadership to fix those problems but but if you don't invest, you're 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 falling behind. You can't just be making twenty five basis points like in those old two year treasuries, right? So what are people supposed to do,
1: either in spite of or because of these conditions? Right. Well, I'm writing this article now about how people should invest. The question is, well, should you invest with statistics? Should you invest with the political cycle, or should you invest on hope? You know, there are a lot of people who buy, well, people buy hope stocks. I mean, you know, they're a, a tech company. It's new. I mean, back in its day, Microsoft, you know, Apple, you want to put money in these stocks. I mean, who knows what they're going to do? Well, Google, you know, well, God bless you if you did. But a lot of people didn't know what they were. You know, the, these, were, these were flyers. Uh, depending on how much you know about tech and other things, maybe you thought it was a safer bet than other people did. But but who knows? You know, uh, so, you know, you, you can you can invest in, in rumor stocks. Uh, you can get invested in things that are, and, and in conditions that are statistically proven to be you know, verifiable. For example, you know, I point out the unemployment rate. It doesn't stay below 4%. You know, The unemployment rate's going to go, the Fed cannot create a soft landing that's going to keep it below 4%. Um, that just doesn't seem possible to me. So what's going to happen is if the Fed will not raise interest rates enough in this coming year, if they're going to cut interest rates, then very likely we are going to see inflation accelerate and uh, we're going to see eventually that unemployment rate go up. We're very likely, even though the economists aren't talking about it, headed for a recession because you know w- when, you stop, when you stop making good monetary policy, that's what happens. The great irony about the dual mandate at the Fed is that if you want the strongest job market possible, then you need to have price stability. If you sacrifice price stability to keep the unemployment low, the unemployment rate low, then you're gonna bring more inflation into the picture and, and you can try to deny it, but you're going to wind up where the Fed was, you know, eventually after you know, 2021, 2022, you're going to have to raise rates. And you might have to raise them a lot more. And maybe next time that they have to raise rates more, uh, the economy isn't going to be quite so resilient because you're not going to have all that money pouring in from the federal government. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. I think it's an election year. And I think in the election year, uh, we're going to basically play into November. Things are going to be pretty good. The Fed's going to be careful about what it does. But, you know, come November, all bets are off. Um, I think that the Fed probably would have made policy too easy by that time. They probably will cut rates and uh, they're going to do it with the inflation rate too high. And this is the problem. They're going for a soft landing. What's a soft landing? First of all, let me say this. a soft landing.
0: I don't even know what that's supposed to mean, honestly.
1: It has no definition. If you look back at the periods that people want to designate as soft landings, for the most part, they're periods where the unemployment rate didn't rise, but the Fed raised interest rates for some reason, okay? And um, you know, there's one in the mid-1990s that worked out, partly because the Fed had cut rates too deeply on the recovery and so they raised rates meaning they just brought them back to where they should have been and they didn't leave them too low for too long so we didn't really get any inflation from it and they call that a soft landing but this is not like that you know we're coming off of real inflation we have real inflation we have a situation where the fed needs to reduce the inflation rate it needs to reduce the inflation rate but. It's the unemployment rate that it's trying to keep from going up, but it needs to reduce the inflation rate. So how can they not raise the unemployment rate and reduce the inflation rate? Well, I think school prayers is not legal, so you can't get school children to pray for you. Uh, You can hope, but uh, this isn't the right policy. so unless all those people in the market who have 15 years of experience of inflation at 2% are right, and there's some new gravity model in which inflation is going to magically go back down to 2%, there's going to be a problem this year because the Fed is not going to be fighting the evil it needs to fight. and. They, if they achieve their soft landing, here's the problem. What's a soft landing? Well, you've got a low unemployment rate. And so you get the inflation rate kind of down, but you probably don't get it to 2%, but you get it kind of down. And so it's over the target, but it's not excessive anymore. And then by that, I mean it's not 5% or 7%, but it's excessive relative to target. But now you're still at full employment. So you're still at full employment, so you've still got all these tensions in the labor market, and you've still got all these pressures on inflation, and you've only moved inflation down to maybe 3%. Maybe you're lucky to get it down to 2.5%. So you're not in a very good position. So the problem is calling it a soft landing doesn't make sense because guess what? There's no airport. You don't land anywhere. You're in this very uneven place where the unemployment rate is still going to be threatened. So uh, this is the problem. The soft landing basically is not a destination. The soft landing is a pretended destination that doesn't solve the the situation that you want to be solved. It doesn't create the nirvana that you want, unless you think you really are going to get the unemployment rate down below 4%, you're going to get inflation to 2%, and we're all going to live happily ever after in a Walt Disney movie.
0: (laughs) What would happen if they said, hey, we want you to join the Fed?
1: Uh, That's not going to happen. We we know it's not
0: going to happen, but what would you do differently? If you were all of a sudden in charge, at least you could vote.
1: Well, it doesn't It'd be one vote, you know, and, and if I were a governor, I'd vote at every meeting. If I were a, a district bank president, I'd vote every once in a while and it would be a vote, you know, and I would I would speak about the economy. I in. In, in, in what I consider to be more objective fashion, one of the one of the things about the Powell Fed is there's very little dissent. You don't see many people dissenting at any Fed meetings anymore. Everybody is together, and I'm not sure exactly what this means. I mean, do they water down what they write in their policy statements so much that everybody can agree with it, or are people afraid of dissenting? Dissent is a good thing. We need. But to what see happens dissent? if you dissent? You can't get fired, right? Powell can't kick you off, right? Um, no, but you know, I mean, the Fed is an organization that has always been very collegial and even people who leave the Fed don't want to be on bad terms. You don't see people leaving the Fed and being highly critical of what they're doing. Most of the people say, oh, they're doing about the right thing. Maybe they could do a little bit more of this. You know, um, it's like a chef tasting another chef's dish and tell you how great it is. Oh, maybe just a touch more salt or maybe just a little more butter, but it's really very good, right? I mean, they really don't uh, get in the trenches. They don't leave and blow things up, right? They they, they put some real um, characters on the Fed when Paul Volcker was there, right? Ronald Reagan was upset and he wanted rates cut. And so they, they had uh, the people uh, put on the Fed, uh, Manny Johnson, uh, Martha Seeger, Wayne Angel, uh, Preston Martin, and uh, they finally uh, – They finally put pressure on on Volcker and outvoted him at one of the board meetings uh, to permit a a discount rate cut at the time that Volcker didn't want rates to go down. And so there was a palace revolt. And uh, that was very much staged by Reagan to try to put pressure on Volcker. So these kinds of things have happened. But one person isn't going to do anything. And uh, if you go in there as a bull in the China shop, uh, life isn't going to be easy for you. You don't see anybody at the Fed acting that way. You see some people who are a little bit more independent. You see some people who are a little bit more hawkish. But people really stick to their knitting. They really stick to their economics. If they've got a different point of view, they stick to their models. And uh, you don't see a lot of really critical stuff, a lot of dissent from within the Fed. And right now, you're seeing very little dissent at the Fed.
0: There's so much more we we can can get to. But I'm curious, where can people find all your work because i know you've got you're on seeking alpha you're on a lot of places are you on are you on twitter or other social media how can they how can they read more about you know what you're writing on an ongoing basis
1: i have a Substack. it's uh it's my name robert prescott substack.com and i do you know write things for uh for seeking alpha and uh, i get quoted in some other places i have a linkedin page
0: thank you so much for joining me. Really appreciate you, you sharing your wisdom, not being afraid to, to say what you really think and, and really being open and honest with us today. So thank you so much for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Thanks again to my guest, Robert Brusca, for joining me here on Wealthy On today. If you want to check out more information, go to the rest of our channel, like, subscribe, share, comment, all of those things really help get the content out there to as many people as possible. And of course, go to WealthyOn.com, a lot more information there. You can check out all of our other shows, the older episodes. A lot of stuff really good there. And you can check out Anthony Scaramucci's show, submit questions. That's a live Q&A show every Friday at 11. He takes those calls and emails, answers your questions there every Friday. And of course, if you're looking for investment advice, looking for a professional, help you figure out your family's finances, your investment future, we've got investment professionals that we endorse. We recommend at wealthyon.com There's a little short form there to get you connected. No cost. No no obligation, no commitment, just something we do as a public service. You can have a conversation, see if that person is right for you. And if not, no worries. Thanks again for watching. I'm Eric Chemi. We'll see you next time.